Uh, let me pray for us, and then we will look at Acts chapter 5 together. Father, we thank you that you have brought us back together again, and that, Lord, we can rest assured knowing that you are at work. I pray, God, that you would uh, sharpen our eyes, make us sensitive to what you're doing and how you're doing it and where, so that, Lord, we can celebrate even those small uh, evidences of grace in the people around us and in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would celebrate that, no matter how small they are, that we'd be people who would celebrate even the smallest act or demonstration of your presence in somebody's life and in our lives, Lord. And so I pray that uh, you would help us to do that and that your word this morning would sharpen us to your spirit and to the work that he's doing in us to make us the kind of people, Lord, that you just work constantly and freely among us and through us to reach those around us. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to be willing to receive your word to us. Uh, Lord, we know that it teaches us, but it also corrects us and it shows us the way to go. And I pray, Lord, that our time this morning in a passage like Acts chapter 5 that can be challenging, Lord, would be a, a healthy corrective to us. I pray that it would be part of you uh, breathing health and vitality into our church and into our church family. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me to teach, to be clear, to be faithful, and that you would help all of us, Lord, to be sensitive to what you have to say to each of us and to us together as a church this morning through our time in your word. So we give this time to you and we ask you, Lord, please to be here, to uh, be pleased, and that you would work, that you'd work unhindered, and that you would do wonderful things in our midst. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across a story a couple weeks ago about an older man who was in the news for reasons that you're not usually hopeful that you'll be in the news for. Uh, but he was in the news because charges had been filed against him because in September of last year, he was discovered living in his home with the decaying bodies of his brother and his mom who uh, the best guess is that the mother died sometime a year before that. So he was discovered in September of 2016. Uh, the coroner's best guess is mother died sometime in August of 2015, and his brother died sometime before that, and they're really not sure. And this man had been living in the home with his mother and brother's remains for at least a year, possibly longer. And initially, when you read that story, you think, okay, this is like, he did it, he killed these people, this is even worse. Nothing of the sort. He was just, uh, they had all been sickly and were living together to try to help each other and take care of each other, and his brother passed away, and then his mother passed away, and he didn't know what to do. And he felt stuck, and so he just kind of closed their doors and didn't go in there again. And from the outside looking in, we can hear that story and go, well, why, like, why... What would you be scared at? What, what would keep you from calling somebody to take them away and care for their bodies? Um, and as I was reading that story, what came to mind was a quote by C.S. Lewis where he was talking specifically about uh, temptations to sin that other people experience. And he says, never make light of another man's sin because you have no idea what it's like. And it's easy for us to make light of something that someone else struggles with or something that someone else is scared of if we ourselves don't have that problem. But for this man, he was scared. Maybe, just, maybe something happened. I don't know why he was scared, but he was scared. And so he didn't call for help from the people that could help him and actually get him out of this situation. And so in a very literal way, he was living in a place of death. And it took other people coming in and saying, this is, not, this is not a healthy place. You cannot stay here. You can't keep living like this. We've got to get your parents and your brother's bodies out of here. We need to clean this place out. We need to check on you, make sure, are you, like, are you okay living in a house with dead bodies? Like, there's just so much that has to happen to ensure that this guy can be healthy in every way. And in his case, it took somebody else coming in and saying, this is not a good place for you to be. This is not a good place for you to live. 
You are living literally in a place of death. And I thought about that story as we were coming into this chapter in Acts chapter 5 that um, is a challenging text for us not to just read, but then to wrestle with what does that then mean for us as a church? Because what often happens in church circles or if you, if you grew up in any sort of religious environment, the idea of repentance is often used as a weapon. It's used, it's dressed up in the guise that, oh, we just, we just care, about, uh, we care about purity and we want to live for God. And so, but what ends up happening is it can create this really, this really evil environment where people are not safe to be what we are, which is sinners. And if we're not safe to be sinners, that means that we're not really in a place where we can fully receive all of the good news of Jesus. We're not in a place where we can fully receive the ministry of the Spirit as He applies the work of Jesus to us and He heals wounds and He redeems us from sin. If, if we're not in a safe place and if repentance is a weapon, then we're missing out on so much of what God wants to do in us, so much of His healing, so much of His help, so much of His provision. And yet often what I feel like what keeps us is not, it's not that we think we really don't have anything going on in our life that we have to confess. I think most of us know. The problem is, is that like this man, we don't often feel safe to give words to it. And so instead what we do, the closest we get is we'll say, oh, I'm just struggling with whatever. I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with greed. I'm struggling with something. Uh, here's the problem with that language. There's two things. Number one, when we talk about sin as just something we're struggling with, it can create a mindset where we're just the victim. And sometimes, uh, sometimes it is true that we are sinned against, and so then we learn to sin in response, even if it's not back at that person. You've probably heard the phrase that hurt people hurt people. It's true in our spiritual lives also. That when we feel hurt and wounded in some way, we will act in inappropriate ways in response. Uh, and so in some sense, yes, we, can, we have received wounds and hurts from other people. But we are still active agents in what we decide to do. We are still taking those steps and choosing to act in a way that we know is wrong or that we recognize we shouldn't do that anymore, and yet we still do it. And so when we just talk about sin and we talk about the things in our life in the language of struggle, it can remove us from it. And we can start to act and think and feel like we're just victims. If everybody else would get their act together, then I'll be all set. And we can't, we can't start there. Because number one, if you're waiting around for everybody else to not sin anymore you'll never get to the place where you can actually get some healing and experience God's freedom and uh, life in these places that you've been hurt. The second reason why it's not helpful is that it's too abstract. You and I don't sin abstractly. We sin very specifically. And when we confess in ways that make us the victim and our sin is abstract, and then we wonder why we don't seem to feel any victory or any growth or get past certain patterns that have plagued us forever. Because we're specific sinners, but we want to confess abstractly and put the blame on somebody else. But if we want to find the kind of health and healing and new life, we have to learn to be specific sinners. And we have to be people that can embrace that so that you and I can give safety to each other. Because when we create, when we live in a church and create an environment where unrepentance is the norm and that we are uh, abstract sinners, that actually creates a place that is more threatening to us than anything that could come from the outside. In fact, I know it's, our whole culture is sort of turned upside down and it seems like, you know, Everything is coming at the church, and you've got talking heads who are just beating that fear and saying, man, the, the church is going to be oppressed, and they're trying to drive... 
I don't, I don't think anything culturally is a threat to the church. I don't think anything the government could do, I don't think anything uh, social norms could do is a threat to the church. Because the church has lived through all of this a hundred times before. They've lived through challenging uh, sexual norms. They've lived through oppressive governments. They have lived through uh, being pushed to the margins of society and having homes and possessions and things taken from them. They've lived through that. And you know what? The church has flourished. But you know what will kill a church faster than anything? What I am convinced the greatest threat to the church is? It is our own self-righteousness. It is our own commitment to ensuring I put out this pure and perfect image to everybody else around me, that I've got life together. I've got this thing figured out. That, I am convinced, will kill any church faster than anything outside the walls. The problem with that, though, is that requires something of us. To say that it's some cultural movement outside, whether it's the LGBT community, or it's Planned Parenthood, or it's those Democrats, or maybe it's those Republicans. If it's anything outside the walls, it's easier because it's their fault. But when it becomes my own self-righteousness, my own unwillingness to name my sin, and for us together to beg God to please free us from these things, anything other than that will suffocate a church and kill it. Because if, if we're so committed to our own self-righteousness, there's no room for God to work. So it's no surprise then when we're tracking with the early church after Jesus has gone back to the right hand of the Father and the, the church has been filled with the Spirit and sent out in the power of God to share the gospel with everybody, uh, they're moving along, they're sharing the gospel. We've looked at this. Peter preaches one sermon, 3,000 people are saved. Every preacher's dream. Uh, the next day they're just going about, going about their day, find a a guy who can't walk, they heal him. All of this great stuff is happening. In Acts chapter 4, we, we see Peter continue to preach this sermon that he's brought before the religious elders. They're kind of going, what in the world is happening? Like, we're trying to get our head around this. And they just say, hey, maybe just ease up on the Jesus talk. That's the worst that the church has had it up to this point. So if you're thinking, put yourself, uh, this might be a strange exercise, but put yourself in Satan's shoes. You, you knew Jesus was coming. You knew, okay, this is kind of the end of the deal. Like, this is it for me. Uh, maybe I can, maybe if I kill him, that'll end it. And you go, oh no, like that seemed to pour gas on the fire. Okay, great. Uh, this church is, is going. God is with these people. He's working. What can I do to stop this? Well, like we've seen in history and even see in the rest of the book of Acts, uh, religious oppression doesn't really seem to do much about it. Political oppression doesn't seem to, that, those things seem to help it. I know what I'll do. I'll get inside it and I'll find a way to just shut them off from the spirit, to shut them off from the source of life. I know what I'll do. I'll get a guy to want to put forth this great piety, this great generosity, but I'll convince him, like, hey, keep some of that for yourself. It's a win-win. You look really spiritual. The church gets this money that it needs, but, man, you still get to pocket a whole lot of it. And what we know, even just from political history, when you look at uh, even the Roman Empire, what killed the Roman Empire? It wasn't that there was some greater political power that just overwhelmed them and crushed them because... Rome took over the known world. What was it that killed Rome? It was their own weakening from the inside. It was their lack of commitment to virtue. It was their self-indulgence, their pride, their arrogance to think that no one could ever possibly break the walls of Rome. And then one day, something that hadn't happened in centuries, the river freezes, and the Visigoths come, coming, come just barreling down from Germany and destroy Rome. It wasn't that these tribes were just that much smarter and more powerful. 
is that Rome had weakened itself and corroded itself from the inside so that when any enemy came barreling in, there was nothing they could do. They couldn't stand up to it. And the same thing is true of the church, that if we allow ourselves to corrode from the inside, if we allow unrepentance to perpetuate this unsafe environment in this place where God's Spirit's not free to work and to move among us, that'll kill us faster than anything. It'll kill us faster than not having enough money to pay our bills. That'll kill you faster than not having a place to meet. Because it, it, it is a threat that threatens us on so many levels. And we see all of that in Acts chapter 5. That uh, if, if you've been reading through the book of Acts, uh, you should know, well, number one, uh, the chapter and verses aren't inspired. So when God gave us the Bible, he didn't also say, okay, now this is verse 3 and this is verse 4. That was added later to help us as we read it. And so sometimes the chapter and verse breaks might not always be the most natural breaks. And I think that's the case here in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Because when we look at the end of Acts chapter 4, Luke has this transition statement that he puts in a number of places throughout the book of Acts that kind of sum up everything that's happened in this fall so far, and he's going to transition to something different. And we see that in verses 32 to 35, where he talks about that all of these, all of these believers who had come to faith, that they're of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things belonged to him, but that they had everything in common. Power was with the apostles, giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, so on and so forth. Just describing this, uh, not just all of these people that had come to faith, but the great love and generosity that they had among each other. And then he'll talk about one person in particular, and I really feel like this is meant to go with the beginning of Acts chapter 5, and and I'll explain that in a second. But in verse 36, Luke tells us that Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Coming to Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. What Luke is trying to do is set these two things apart. He wants the example of Barnabas to contrast with what we're about to see with Ananias. Because both of them had a piece of property, both of them sold that piece of property, and both of them brought money to the apostles. And it would, if we just looked at that, we would think, man, they've got a lot of wealthy people in this church. They've got a lot of generous people in this church. What's really the problem? Here's, here's the problem. And Luke, Luke tells us a little bit of it, but then his interaction with Peter in verse 3 gives us more of an insight. Uh, that he, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, that in and of itself isn't, isn't the issue. And Peter will say that in verse 3. The, the issue is, the great problem is, as Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? He'll keep going in verse 4, that while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? What Peter is getting at is that the problem is not that you had this piece of land, right? They're not, uh, the church is not operating under this idea that everyone in the church, all of your stuff belongs to everybody else, and so no one has their own possessions. That's not how the church operated. So he's saying, look, this belonged to you. It was yours. Nobody made you sell it. And so why then did you sell it and bring the money and keep some of it? You could have done all of that. You could, have kept, you could have kept the land, you sold it. You could have kept all the money, but you wanted to bring some of it. He said, none of this is wrong. If any of you had a piece of, of land and you said, you know, hey, I want, I want to sell this and I want to give to some ministry, uh, you're not under any compulsion to sell that land. You could keep it, but you feel like, hey, I, I want to sell this. Uh, and if you sold it, however much you've got, if you wanted to split it right down the middle and keep some of it for yourself and then give the rest of it, fine. There's no problem in any of that. There's no problem in anything that Ananias did, except he wanted to act as though he was giving all of it while keeping some of it. He wanted all of the honor without any of the sacrifice. 
He wanted all of the respect and the perception of being this spiritual giant and this incredibly generous person, even though he wasn't generous at all, and he was actually more concerned about his pocketbook, but he wanted to look really spiritual. Peter's saying, this is a huge, huge problem. So much so that he will say, you, at the end of uh, verse 4, you have not lied to men, but to God. And what an unrepentant heart will do, the first thing that it threatens is our fellowship with God. It threatens to cut us off from the very source of life to begin with. And so in our attempt to look really spiritual and feel really pious, we are actually cutting ourselves off from any opportunity and any hope to have any real spiritual vitality at all. We're going about it the wrong way. We're going about it backwards. And so it becomes a threat not just to us, but to our very spiritual life. Because Luke has presented the story of the church in such a way that we feel the force that uh, without the Holy Spirit, there is no new life. There is no coming to faith in Christ. There is no church. And so if we, if we are committed to being ambiguous, uh, abstract sinners who are just victims to things, rather than naming our sin and knowing what my faults are, knowing where I'm broken, knowing where my sin patterns are, and naming them and pleading for the blood of Jesus to help to cleanse me and for the Spirit of God to help me to overcome these things. Unless we are like that, we are going to cut ourselves off. And that sounds like a strong thing to say, but you know, there's this tension between the ministry of the Spirit and our, our fellowship with God. Because this New Testament will talk about uh, the work of the Spirit in such a way that on the one hand, that when you come to faith in Christ, the Spirit is given to you. He is a seal, a sign that you belong to God and that you will forever, that you're His child and that He's not going to abandon you. And yet at the same time, we can live and act and choose to conduct ourselves in such a way that cut ourselves off from Him. So we cannot lose our salvation. We can't stop being children of God. But Paul will be very clear in Galatians chapter 5 that we, we cannot gratify the desires of the flesh and walk in the Spirit because the desires of the flesh are contrary to the desires of the Spirit. These two things are at odds with each other, and we can't have both. Or like Jesus puts it, you can't serve two masters. In his case, talking about money and the idolatry that money can stir up in the human heart. But the principle is still the same. We can't have two masters and we can't serve them equally and we can't serve them from the heart. One of them is going to lose. And if we continue to be an unrepentant people, people who, who, who cannot trust that if we name our sins specifically, that God is faithful to His promises to cleanse and pardon and forgive... And that that will actually keep us tied and tethered to the life and power of God. That the way out of sin is to not ignore it or fight against it or, not, or just fear it coming out. The way to fight against sin is to name it. Is to bring it into the light. To bring it into the light so that it can burn off and kill the things that hide in the dark. And that starts with us recognizing the threat that our own unrepentance is between us and the Spirit. It's also a threat to everyone else. Because Luke hints at this at the beginning as we, as we realize this story unfolds, that Ananias wasn't acting in and of himself. He wasn't doing this just by himself. That Ananias brought, involved his wife in his own sin. It says in, in verse 2 that... Uh, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And so even though this was his idea, his wife becomes an accessory to it and suffers the same discipline. There are some uh, commenters and New Testament scholars who, who think, who will argue that Ananias and Sapphira just clearly were not Christians. And all the rest of us are like, have you spent any time in a church? Uh, because this, like... We read this and go, yeah, yeah, I know these people. Uh, or this sounds really familiar because I look at his face every morning. Uh, 
But I don't think there's any reason to suggest that Ananias and Sapphira were not legitimate followers of Jesus. There's nothing in the verses before it. There's nothing leading up to this point that would suggest that. This husband, they're, they're part of this group of believers. They belong to this church. They received uh, not only the generosity of other people, but they likely were, were giving it, sincerely wanting this money to go to other people, but their motivation was wrong. Their motivation was sinful and uh, self-aggrandizing, wanting to prop me up like I'm this great thing. But Ananias' sin, whatever, whether it was just ego or it was a, a need to be praised, whatever kind of language we would put it in today, his wife, it brought not just his wife but the whole community into it. Because Peter, in this moment, as he is rebuking Ananias, in verse 5, we're told that when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And then in verse 6, the young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. And then, starting in verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the field for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at her feet and breathed her last. So not only, not only does Ananias involve his wife in his own sin, but he also involves her in his own discipline. And sometimes the Lord will discipline us in light ways. But sometimes, and Hebrews 12 hints at this, and other passages will hint at this, that sometimes the sin is so great and so ingrained in us that God in His mercy would actually take our life so that we can't continue sinning. And there, when I was at Moody, there was a, a student who was there at the same time, and he graduated a couple of years ahead of me. And one of our professors had really spent a lot of time with him. Uh, you know, some professors get into it for the academic work, and they write a lot of articles and commentaries, and that's necessary work. But we had this one professor, brilliant New Testament scholar, uh, but he spent all of his time outside of the classroom meeting with students and discipling people and caring for people and trying to mentor them and disciple them. And he was one of those guys who had met with this professor all this time. And it was... A fall semester, a new year, he had graduated the year before, and shortly into that semester, news came back that he was found dead in his home of a gunshot wound. Uh, but because of the entry, it was pretty clear that this wasn't self-inflicted. And as the reports came in, it seemed that what had happened was that he was uh, cleaning off a gun of his. It went off, ricocheted, and struck him right in the head. It was dead instantly. And our professor was telling us this because uh, he had spent years with this student. And this student had been battling uh, an addiction to pornography, a pretty serious one. And for at least a year or so, our professor was pleading with this young man to repent of it and turn from it and get help, let him help him. And the, the guy just kept saying, no. He didn't want help for it. And so then for him to be found dead, he, he looked at us with all sincerity and he said, if you don't turn from your sin, God will take you home. Because just like a good father, I, I wouldn't let my sons just sit there and uh, drink Drano. Because I knew that is, that is going to destroy his poor little body. I would do anything to get that out of his hands and to get that away from him. Even if in the process I had to, what would seem like hurt him, to get it away from him. I love him too much to let him sit there and even take a sip of it. And the more he would want to keep going after it, the more my discipline would have to get him further away from it. And so Ananias' sin doesn't just involve him, and, or it doesn't just involve him, and it doesn't just, the discipline doesn't just fall on him, it falls on his wife and then involves the whole church. Because in this day, uh, again, there, there was no government-sponsored aid. If you died, it's on your family. It's up to them to take you, to clean you up, and bury you. 
or the Romans would just cremate. But it was still on you. And so here's the early church already operating as a family, sharing each other's burdens, caring for each other, taking on other people's debts. And now here this man thinking, oh, I can just do this one thing. I'll look really great, and, but it won't cost me a whole lot. And it ends up costing his family and the church everything. Because the church has just lost a couple. They've lost two of their own. And the church has now had to take on the cost of caring for their bodies and burying them. So in this one self-righteous act of quote-unquote generosity becomes actually a great expense to the church. And the church still rises up. The young men still take both his husband and wife away. They wrap them up. They care for them. Do everything they're supposed to do to care for these bodies. But the fact remains that their unrepentance and their sin cost the church a lot. And it didn't just cost them their own personal fellowship with the Spirit, but it cost the church cost them relationships, it cost them uh, people, it cost them finances, it cost the church in every way. And here's the other big thing. The third way that this is a threat is that Peter hints on something that for most of us, because again, we're good uh, Western, Enlightenment educated people, we tend to pass over it just as sort of spiritual language. Uh, but the New Testament really doesn't let us think this way. Peter looks at Ananias and said, why have you let Satan Fill your heart to lie against God. Why have you let Satan convince you to do this? And when, for us, we will look at that and go, oh, these Bible guys. These Bible, like, yeah, okay, he's out, Satan's out there. And we, we might say, in principle, or on our statement of faith, or maybe in a theology test, yes, Satan exists, and angels and demons exist, but that's about as far as we go with it. But the New Testament doesn't let us stop there. The New Testament presents to us, no, we're, we're in a real struggle here. It's no, something, nothing short of warfare. Paul will even use that language in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and rulers of the air and forces of spiritual darkness. And a lot of New Testament scholars on Ephesians 6 recognize Paul's not just using big language. He's not just using metaphor that likely what he is describing is like uh, we wage war against the privates and sergeants and lieutenants and captains of the forces of darkness. He is describing a hierarchy of spiritual authority but also spiritual opposition. And earlier in that same letter in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul is talking about all of the sort of different moral commands. He's laid out the gospel and how it frees us in Christ and it makes us new people and all of these diverse people are coming together in one man. All of this incredible stuff that he's talking about, what Jesus has done, transitions in chapter 4 to then start to talk about how do we live? How does this change how we live? And that's where he talks about things like uh, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only what's useful for the building up of others. Uh, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the, the sun go down on your anger. And then he says uh, do not let, uh, do not give Satan a foothold. And again, we tend to read that metaphorically, but likely the best sense is that you know, the more we live in unrepentance and the more that we allow sin to reign in our life, the more we are saying on a spiritual level, uh, I know I, God may have made me his son or his daughter, but really, I, I'm committing a spiritual act of treason. I'm committing myself to sin, Satan's sin and death. And the picture that Paul is painting in this words, it's like uh, sin and death and Satan just kind of get this handle on our chest and can just kind of pull us around wherever we want to go, wherever he wants us to go. And that the, the way that we live in this life then, the way that we fight not only sin, but we fight the real enemy of our souls is that we plead for Jesus to work. And we beg for him to do what only he can do and that we... Uh, uh, repent of our sin and ask for that cleanse and pardon that he has secured for us through his death and resurrection. But also, what it has done, as Jesus says uh, in his own teaching, is that he tells a parable of a strong man, that you don't break into a strong man's house until you first bind him up and then you take whatever you want. In Jesus' parable, he's the one who breaks into the strong man's house. He's the one who binds the enemy. So that uh, 
in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter will tell us that Satan roams about roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yet we come to Revelation chapter 20, and we recognize, my, my best way of understanding Revelation chapter 20 is it's not sometime in the future, but sometime now, and that what has happened is through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of his spirit on his people, Satan has been bound and hindered. So he, he can't just roam free and do whatever he wants in this world anymore. Because Jesus is taking back what belongs to him. And so when we live in unrepentance and when we try to, try to look more spiritual than we are and, and talk in vague language about our sin, rather than specifically, it, it doesn't just threaten us and the Lord, it doesn't just uh, hurt other people around us, but it also gives Satan way more influence in our lives and influence in the church. And Jesus is clear in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and I have come that they might have life and life abundant. That when we let sin run rampant and reign in our life, we are ensuring, we are ensuring that our spiritual lives, our relationships with each other, what God wants to do in Pearland, in this church, we're ensuring it won't happen. We're allowing this sort of spiritual acid to fill up this spiritual home and just melt away everything. And yet the challenge is, the, the idea, at least culturally for many of us, the idea of repentance has been used to hurt so many people. That it's hard then for us to know, well, how do we do this wisely? How do we create a culture of safety? And I think part of it begins with me. I think part of it begins with those who lead the church. That part of my job, that maybe you won't ever see it, but part of my job is to ensure that I am listening to the Spirit. And is there a sin in my life being quick to confess it? And quick to repent of it? And quick to throw myself at the cross in the empty tomb and to trust that His cleansing is sufficient for me? But also, something I've begun to do is to pray, Lord, however the enemy's working, whatever he's doing in me, stop it. Uh, being a part of, you know, our church being a part of a Presbyterian denomination, that means uh, creeds and confessions like Westminster Confession are a big part of what informs our faith and how we uh, sort of express what we see the Bible teaching and one of, those, one of the interesting parts about it is the Westminster Confession talks about the offices of Christ, the roles that he plays, that he is a prophet, he is a priest, and is a king. And the confession reads, as our king, he fights, uh, for, he fights against both his and our enemies and defeats them. And I don't think that's metaphorical language. I, I think that that is real specific language that when we feel like there is sin in our lives that we just can't get past or there is wrong thinking and the truth just cannot get in when we go to pray or read scripture or come to gather with God's people and we just have no interest and we just find every reason to run from it the the response in moments like that or when sin is just having free reign is to not just say okay I'm going to Trust that Jesus forgives me and that his blood covers me and I'm, I'm okay with God now and I just need to try harder. The response is, yes, we cling to Jesus. We trust in the good news that he has cleansed us and pardoned us. But then we pray, Lord, don't let the enemy win over me. Don't let the enemy win. Don't let the enemy continue to have those strongholds. Don't let the enemy continue to, to convince me of... Uh, Untruth, is that a word? Convince me of whatever is not true. Don't let the enemy find ways to keep me from you and from hearing from you and seeking you. Because he'll do everything he can to do that. And when we become a people who are uh, committed to being specific sinners, so that we can confess our specific sin, the Spirit of God flows freely because even like we looked at in Galatians chapter 5 that when we allow sin to reign we resist the spirit but when we walk in the spirit we confess those sins 
That, that confession is the first part because John says, or Jesus says in John's gospel, uh, that the Spirit will come to convict the world of sin and lead them into righteousness. The first work of the Spirit is to convict us of sin and to remove those sins from our life so that He can work in all of those other ways, so that we can see Him reach those people around us with the gospel, so that we can see Him help us share the gospel freely and show the gospel through acts of justice and mercy. And like I said, I think a lot of times in the church that starts with me. It starts with the pastors. It starts with the people who are leading us. And so often pastors will get too scared about losing their job and they got to present this image of uh, perfection because if there's any chink in the armor, well, then I'm unfit for the office. And it's true, pastors and elders are called to a high standard. But we're not called to a standard that cannot exist in this life. And I think that the way we become the kind of men and even women that Paul describes uh, in those chapters, they're not this special class of Christians. It's uh, what every Christian should hope to be like. Uh, But we get there. The path is not through pretending we don't have sin. The path is through fighting sin. And the first way that we do that is we repent of it. And so even for me, as I'm thinking about this moment, like, I think it's important in a time like this for me to not just get up here and preach this sermon on repentance and why it's so important and then go, okay, now you guys get, get to getting, get to repenting uh, without doing it first. And one thing that I have to confess is a couple weeks ago, uh, actually I think it was the Sunday after we had looked at Acts chapter 2 and we had prayed, we had written down all these names that we felt like the Lord had brought to mind. And we're praying not just that God would save these people, that he would double this church in six months, and that he would do it by saving these people. And then I left that day, and uh, most of you know I've been in the church planting world for the last couple years in Houston before I came here. And so I have a lot of friends who have planted churches and are working on planting their churches. And one of those friends just launched public services for the first time two weeks ago. And he has been working up to this moment for two years, easy. Uh, and the day finally came, and he launched this church. And on their very first Sunday, they had 464 people. Now, I know, anytime you launch a church, the attendance is always the highest on the first Sunday. And then it drops a good 30 to 50% the next Sunday and down and so on. And so they'll probably settle in somewhere around 150, 200 and. I mean, they're doing great work, and I I love this guy. He's been a great friend, and I couldn't be more excited for him, except you know where I'm going with this. You start to get jealous, and you start to go, Lord, I I am stepping out on a limb here. What did I just ask these people to do, and did, did I just promise them something that I can't accomplish, and why can't you do that here? And how quickly that pride and fear and arrogance stirs up in my heart. And I realized in that moment how, on the one hand, I think God understands. God understands the struggle. God understands how all of us feel. That we've committed our lives to this thing and it seems like it's just been speed bump after speed bump after wall and we've given the best years of our life to you and here we are. Yeah, people are out there first Sundays, 500 people. I think God understands that, how we can wrestle with that. I think God's a better father than we give him credit for. Hebrews does say that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, and yet he was tempted and tested in every way we were, yet we're without sin. I think he gets what this feels like. But I also think that he knows what he's doing. Um... And I think he has allowed us to come to this point because, like I've talked about, I think he wants, he wants us to become a different kind of people. And so it's not so much about, can we just have this huge church so we can feel good about, hey, look what we did. But do we really want to be a church that wants him and wants to see him work and to see him move and to see him do what only he can do? Because could you imagine if in six months or a year or two years from now, we look around and, yeah, 
Maybe we've got 150 people or 200 or maybe 464 people. But all of those new people are people that God has brought to himself. And so we don't just have all of these warm bodies. We have stories of God's grace and his power and his mercy. And we are this community that has experienced that over months and years. Can you imagine what that would be like? Because there's stuff we could do. We could go get a loan, or I could go raise a bunch of money. We could get all the cool stuff. We could get a crowd, and we could feel really good about it. And in my heart, I, I realize that even though God understands how I feel, how much of my heart is really not as concerned about the kingdom of God as I want to think. And it's just concerned about building a resume, being the hero. Uh, and so I, I think what God convicted me of and what I think is important to repent of publicly is just the pride of feeling like, God, you owe me that. You've put me through so much crap already. Like, you owe me that. God doesn't owe me that. And also the pride that comes with thinking like, I could be the hero. That I'm the solution to all. I'm not the solution. He is. And so what, I, what I'm confessing to you is that, that pride and that, that arrogance that puffs me up. And I, I don't want that festering in the background anywhere. I don't want that influencing this church or any of you in any unseen or unknown ways. What I want is to make room for God by His Spirit to move without any hindrance, without any opposition, and then trust that He will do something incredible. And that I hope, uh, I also hope that in hearing your pastors say, like, man, I'm really struggling with this, and I struggle when I see God bless other churches. It's not that I am opposed to other churches. We need as many churches in the city as we can get. But there's still part of my heart that is pretty wrapped up in me and wants to see me be made something important rather than really concerned with God. What are you doing, and how can I be a part of it? And what I, what I hope in saying that uh, is that you, you know specifically, hey, this guy needs Jesus as much as I do, number one. Um, but number two, that all of us, really, it's not talk, it's, it's a conviction, it's a need that God's got to do it. And uh, the best I know how, I want to show the way, at least I can figure out. And I'm sure there'll be other times that I'm up here and I say, that was terrible. Um, but I also hope that we can create an environment of safety where we can be specific sinners and we can receive that specific health and healing uh, and forgiveness and cleansing from Jesus and that his spirit can work in powerful ways among us. Um, so let me pray and pray specifically for us and for you in light of this. Father, we thank you that you are a good father who understands who is far more compassionate and merciful and patient than we could ever be. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are our sympathetic high priest who has experienced all of the pain and the tension and the confusion of life in this world, and you did it without sin, but you still know what it feels like. And that you know most of all what it's like to have, well, we feel like, we just feel like maybe God has turned his back on us, but you know what it's like for God to forsake you. Because he did that on the cross for our sake. You allowed yourself to be forsaken by God so that we could have life, so that we could know him. And then you send your Holy Spirit so that you can be with us and in us and among us and so that you're not some far removed deity, but you are with us. That your spirit makes Jesus real to us. He makes him present with us. And I pray, Spirit, that you would be free to blow through this church and to work in powerful ways and that we wouldn't so resist you that you, you just have to keep pressing us to turn from our sin. But that we could be, we could be a church that's safe 
that is so rich and full of the gospel that people are eager to turn from sin and find life in Jesus, to be refreshed in Jesus, to be cleansed in Jesus. And that because of that spirit, you could work and you could move and you could be drawing people to yourself and, and, and you could be teaching them about the Father and you could be convicting them of sin and leading them to faith in Christ. That's what we want to see and we don't want any of our own sin to hinder that. Lord, forgive us for the ways that even on our best day and our best motivation, Lord, there's still a mixture of sin in there. I thank you that you are so patient and kind that you don't just focus forever on every little sin because then you'd, you'd never be able to use us. But in your wisdom and your kindness and your compassion, Lord, you, you work and you use us in spite of our sin and you bring us to convictions of things that we need to repent of, but then you continue to use us and work through us despite our weakness and despite our sinfulness. You are just that great and kind and forgiving, and compassionate, and Father, we thank you. Make this church a safe church for people to be specific sinners. Make us people so freed up by Jesus that we're not, we're not scared of other people's sin, and we're not surprised at our own, that we know it and we can find health and healing. And Lord, for these people, for this church, I pray that whatever ways the enemy has been working, whatever ground that he has been able to gain, would you as our king fight against that and remove him from our midst? Would you protect us? Make us, like Paul says, wise to his schemes. That Lord, even though we are inclined to sin and we will stumble, Lord, that we would be quick to run back to you and that you would be quick to work. God, I pray for whatever, for these people and for those who belong to us who aren't with us today, Lord, whatever sins are running their lives, whatever things they have not been able to find freedom for, and they are beginning to believe there is no freedom in this life from this, I pray that you would free them through Jesus, that you would show them just how great your power and your love is that you would not let the enemy win among us, either by trapping us in sin or, Lord, by suffocating the life out of this church. I pray that you would get everything out of the way that keeps you from using this church to make a real difference in people's lives in this city. That your spirit would blow. That people would come to know you. That every week, every month, every year, Lord, there would be new people who have come to faith in you, have turned to you, have had their eyes and ears open to you and given new hearts by you. And that, Lord, you would help us to trust the path that you have us on, that you would lead us, that you would give us a vision of your work and your kingdom and our place in it and how you want to use us. So, God, we come to you knowing that by Jesus we are cleansed and forgiven and there is nothing, there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. And we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And we do that, Lord, in the name of Jesus, by the help of the Spirit, to ask you, Lord, to help us to be repentant people, to be honest people, to be free people in Jesus. Amen.